Before we get into the sermon outline today, that's on page 11, I want to draw your attention to just a few things in the gospel reading on page 10 from Luke chapter 2. First concerns the structure of the passage. This pericope or this this reading uh, is really framed. uh, Verse 22 is the journey to Jerusalem and then at the end, verses 39 and 40, really the return from Jerusalem and the child growing and being filled with wisdom and so on. Uh, The journey narrative sort of frames the entire reading. And then notice in the very middle is the canticle or the, the song of Simeon and it's often referred to as a canticle or a biblical song. That's what a canticle is. And uh, this may seem rather strange, but uh, I couldn't help but to notice, uh, especially in Luke's Gospel, uh, the parallel between Broadway musicals and um, Luke's infancy narrative uh, of Jesus. You have very seamlessly, you have dialogue And then you have a song, you know? And um, this really began with the musical Oklahoma, where um, I think in 1942 or 43, that hit Broadway. And it was the first musical where you had dialogue that flowed right into music and right back into dialogue again. And the purpose of the music was to either advance the plot or it was to define a character. And, and Oklahoma really set really the pattern for the musicals that would follow. They, that became really the new mold that other musicals then really imitated. And, and there's something just parallel with the way Luke writes uh, in his gospel because you know, uh, the announcement of the angel to the shepherds, you know, it's, there, it's dialogue, and then all of a sudden, it's music, right? And it's the same with the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. There's dialogue, and then all of a sudden, she burst out into song, as we would expect in a musical. And it's the same with uh, Simeon today. It's just an observation. I don't know what it means. It's just something that struck me as I was thinking about this. And uh, but, but notice that canticle's right in the middle. It's emphasized, see? It's defining the character of Jesus. It's also really advancing the plot as well. It's a prediction of what's going to happen as well as a description of our Lord. And, and then uh, I think finally, the reading tells us something about Jesus' background. It tells us something about the kind of home he was raised in. And this is what I mean. Five times in this reading, five times, Luke tells us that his parents acted according to the law of Moses. They observed the law. They kept the law. As the law says, they did this. They did that. Okay? Uh, verse, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, verse 39. All of that means Jesus grows up in a very observant Jewish home. Now, that's important because later on in his life, he will come into conflict with the Pharisees and their legal experts, the scribes. 
and Jesus comes into conflict with them, not as someone who's unfamiliar with the law, but as one who knows it personally. He grew up with it. Of course, he's the author of it too, as the pre-existent Son of God. He ought to know. But he grows up under it, right? And so when he comes into conflict with the, with the legal experts, so-called experts, then you know that this man is credible. He knows the law from the inside out. We pray. Dear Heavenly Father, bless your word to our hearts this day and every day. And I pray that every member and every friend of this congregation will be daily in your word, hearing your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Roman numeral one in your sermon outline, that this child is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. Now, Jesus here as an infant is 40 days old. At 40 days, the child would be brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord and more about that in just a moment. But he's, he's brought to the temple, and little does anyone know, this child is the answer to their prayers. Simeon and Anna knew it. They could see it. No one else in the temple, as far as we know, could see that. To others in the temple, this was just another infant, okay? He's important. He's an infant, right? Infants are important, but no more important than any other infant. However, Simeon and Anna possessed insight that others lacked. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter when Peter confessed Jesus as the, as the Christ. What did Jesus say? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's what's going on here. Faith is the ability to see what others cannot see. It's the ability to see what others can't. Whether it's the infant Jesus as the Savior, or whether it's what's happening in baptism or what's happening in the Lord's Supper, it's the ability to see what others miss, what others are unable to see. The world looks at baptism and says, it's just a handful of water, how can that help anyone? But faith sees baptism according to Scripture as the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the same with the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, the world sees nothing more than a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. Faith sees the Lord's Supper according to the Word of God as the body of Christ given for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. Simeon and Anna see more than an infant. They see the Lord's salvation, and so do we. Faith sees what the world cannot. This child is the answer to our prayers as well. Letter A in your outline, he is salvation incarnate. He is salvation visible. Jesus just doesn't represent salvation. He, he, he doesn't simply point to some other salvation. He is the salvation. The founders of the world's religions try to point you to what they think is salvation. They point to salvation. They'll talk about salvation, but Jesus is salvation 
according to the words of Simeon in our gospel reading for this morning. Now, Christian salvation always involves two things. Two things. First, we are saved from something. Secondly, we're saved for something. We are saved from the wrath of God, which we bring down upon ourselves because of our willful disobedience and our hardness of heart. And we are saved for fellowship with God. In this life, we enjoy the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Let me say that again. We enjoy the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And we enjoy it not because it's suffering, but because it's fellowship with Christ. And in the life to come, we enjoy the fellowship of sharing Christ's glory. It's suffering first, then glory. That's the biblical pattern. And our gospel lesson for today reveals how this infant becomes our salvation. Point number one, A1, as the firstborn of Mary, he is presented to the Lord, but not redeemed. Not redeemed, okay. So just kind of rewind back to Exodus. The Israelites are in Egypt. God has sent plague after plague upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh's hardened his heart, but now this is what's going to, this is the straw that will break the camel's back, the destruction of Egypt's firstborn. But Israel's firstborn are delivered. The angel of death passes over the homes of the Israelites. They deserve to die too. They're just as disobedient as those Egyptians are. But the angel of the Lord passes over the Israelite firstborn and destroys only the Egyptian firstborn. Therefore, God said, look, your firstborn, Israel, your firstborn are mine. As a remembrance of what I did for you and making you a nation, you will give your firstborn to me, but you will redeem them. You will buy them back with a payment of five shekels of silver. That's what's behind our Old Testament reading today. It's describing that redemption price. But, According to our gospel reading, Jesus is not redeemed. There's no mention of a redemption price. In other words, he's sacrificed to the Lord, okay? And this is point number two. He is appointed, or you could say sacrificed, for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem, the people of God. Now, it's redemption for humanity as well, but it begins with Jerusalem, the people of God begins with them, doesn't end with them. It has to start somewhere, right? And point B, this child is a light to the nations, to the nations, and the glory of Israel. Now notice, the light goes to the nations, but it has to begin somewhere. It comes from Israel, because that's where Christ is. He's the glory of Israel. Glory is holiness made visible, and it it begins in Israel, but it shines out into all the earth, you see. It comes to us as well. And so point C, Simeon and Anna represent faithful Israel. They represent faithful Israel. Now there's also unfaithful Israel, and we'll mention them in a moment. But Simeon and Anna are among the faithful souls who recognize and receive Christ as Savior. 
Roman numeral two. This child is set, he's placed. It's the same Greek word, kamite. Mary placed the child in the manger, in the feeding trough, you see. Now he's placed once again. He's placed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. It's like a, like a stone. He's placed in their midst. God places Jesus in the midst of Israel and things begin to shift and move as soon as he's placed there. There's different responses to Jesus. And think of the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. This is what she said. He, meaning the Lord, has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of low degree. You see, God always humbles the proud. He brings them low and he exalts the humble. He lifts them up. Now the proud are those who are confident of their own righteousness and they look down on everyone else. Like the Pharisee in Luke's Gospel who said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or like this tax collector over here. I I fast twice a week and I tithe all that I have. Now that man represents the proud individuals who will stumble over Christ and they will fall. Now the tax collector, in contrast, he stands far off and he's so ashamed of himself he cannot even lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, he represents those in Israel who will be lifted up, those who recognize their unworthiness with respect to this salvation, but who are freely given that salvation and their sins are forgiven. And you see this contrast throughout the ministry of our Lord and throughout the book of Acts where there are those Jews who proudly reject the forgiveness of sins through Christ and they stumble over the gospel. While there are other Jewish listeners who are acutely aware of their need of Christ and his forgiveness, and they eagerly embrace the good news that's being proclaimed. So there's a shift that's taking place in Israel. And the the book of Acts, uh, also written by Luke, records this same kind of division within Judaism, division over the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul goes from town to town. He goes from one synagogue to another, proclaiming the gospel, and the Jewish audience is divided. There's always a division among them. Some believe, some do not. But the Gentiles begin to embrace the gospel. So what you have, you have believing Jews and believing Gentiles forming together into one new Israel, which we call the church. And um, in this new Israel, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. That is the new work that God is doing. He's reconstituting Israel by including the Gentiles. And that too will cause division among the Jewish community as well. So, 
Letter A, the presence of Christ causes movement or shifting in Israel. Point number one, he's the cornerstone. See, he's a, he's a rock. He's placed in the midst of Israel. He's a cornerstone of the new Israel that God is building, the church. But he's also a stone of stumbling. Point number two, he's a rock of offense. Now letter B, everyone will fall, but everyone may still rise through faith in Christ. Everyone will fall. Even the disciples, those closest to Jesus, what did he say to them? You will all fall away. He said on the night he was betrayed. They said, no, no, we'll stand by you. We'll defend you to the death. (laughs) Yeah, famous last words, as we say, right? They all fled. They all fell away. Everyone will fall, but everyone may still rise through faith in Christ. Everyone will fall because pride lives in all of us. We can take offense at gifts that we're given. Even gifts can be offensive. For example, if I gave you a book on how to lose weight, you might take offense at that. And though it's a a gift, and, and I mean well, you may feel insulted. Or if you gave me a book on how to be a better pastor, I'm sure I could benefit from that book, but I might feel a little offended (laughs) by it, uh, just the same. I I can be like that with God's gift of salvation as well. God's gift of salvation in Christ implies that all of us are worse than we thought. The gift of salvation says that we're so bad, we must be saved from ourselves and from our own self-destructive ways and our own poisonous worldviews. The gift of salvation says that we must be made new. The old you ain't worth saving. The old you must be drowned daily in repentance and the new you must emerge daily through faith in Jesus Christ, faith empowered by the promises of God. God's gift of salvation says that God must bring us low through repentance before he can lift us up through forgiveness of sins. So falling need not be fatal. Falling is a condition from which one can be raised by the grace of God, and we are raised by the grace of God. So point C, even when rejected, Christ displays mercy. He displays mercy. Salvation in Christ means that even when we are at our worst, he is at his best. When those no different from you or I nailed Jesus to the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, and I don't know what I do half the time either. St. Paul wrote, for while we were still weak, Christ then, then he died, for the ungodly. Precisely when we were unable to contribute anything to our salvation except our sin, Christ accomplished salvation for us. That means no matter how serious, no matter how numerous your sin, 
You are already forgiven through your baptism into Christ. You are already forgiven through your faith in Jesus Christ. As one of my professors loved to say, he forgives you more sins than you've got. My friends, as bad and as regrettable as our sin is, it only magnifies his mercy to us. He's made every sin a monument to his mercy. Even when we are at our worst, Christ is at his best. That is God's gift of salvation, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel.